0: there isn't one definition of fairness, right? Uh, If you look at philosophy, whether it's like moral or political philosophy, or you look at the law, or even you look at like the vibrant community in the computer science community and machine learning, right? Who's thinking about algorithmic bias. One common pattern is that you have multiple definitions of fairness that are mutually
1: incompatible. So you you have to pick one. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show where we learn about making machine learning models work in the real world. I'm your host, Lucas Biewoldt. Joaquin Candela is the tech lead for responsible AI at Facebook. Prior to that, he built the Applied Machine Learning Team, which powers all production applications of AI across all of Facebook's products. Before that, Joaquin taught at University of Cambridge and worked at Microsoft Research. Today, I'm gonna talk to him about fairness and algorithmic bias, scaling, and democratizing AI at Facebook. You were running the Applied Machine Learning Team at at Facebook, right, during a time when there was tons of machine learning innovation going on. I'd love to hear um, what was happening when you started working on that and kind of what tooling was necessary and how that kind of changed over the time that you were working on that.
0: I think the context is very important here. So I, I joined Facebook in mid 2012. There wasn't a lot of ML people in the company. And if you think about the two biggest applications, it was a newsfeed ranking on the one hand, and then adds ranking right so two, two ranking problems so as far as the models uh, you know were concerned you mostly had binary classifiers that were used as inputs into a ranking function right so you know if you if you think about newsfeed ranking you would have oh so my, my value function is some combination of you know I, I give every click a certain score i give every comment a score i give every you know share a score etc right and then with that, I build myself like a value, a value function. And so I have all these binary classifiers right, that predict the probability that someone will, you know, click, share, or comment or whatever before I show them something, right? And then I kind of use that to sort of like rank content. And for ads, it's a similar thing, right? In ads, back in in the prehistorical times, click-based advertising was like the big, big, big thing, right? Uh maybe like I don't even remember now like 15 years ago 20 years ago whenever and then you know then you had conversions right and then there's like more subtle things where you have like brand and then not all conversions are created equal and then the other thing that happens of course is that the the complexity of the content evolves right like like if you think about when i joined facebook a lot of a lot of the content was mostly text right uh images of course there fewer videos and now that sort of becomes more complex and you have more multimodality. so i joined facebook at a time where you know the company was just uh, IPOing, IPO Inc, and the revenue was flat. And so there was a huge pressure to try and move the needle in ads. I joined the ads team. And one of the big levers to move to move revenue was like, oh, can we get better at predicting you know, clicks and conversions on ads? Right. At the same time, you start to have, you know, we start to move away from uh, only serving ads on web on the right hand column actually also serving ads you know on on mobile and then actually end of 2012 when i joined if you look at like where people were accessing facebook from like web was kind of slowly declining or being stable and then mobile was like rocketing and i think they crossed sort of at around the end of 2012 right so you're like the, the types of surfaces you have the types of things you're predicting starts to increase and so you know the first dilemma that I that I had was like oh I looked at what were we doing right and we were you know we were using um, we were using the Soyuz in a way you know like like to go to the space station nothing fancy just like the good old Soyuz right uh, we were using um, uh, gradient boosted decision trees as feature transformers um, mostly you could think about it that way and then we were using uh, online uh, logistic regression you know uh, sort of. Uh, after that, like cascaded with it, right?
1: So, so, what would you? Sorry to interrupt, but what then would you train the intermediate gradient boosted tree on? What would be the kind of thing that that would try to predict?
0: You'd still train them on on, on the event, on the binary event that you're trying to predict, right? Like like clicks or conversions or or, or whatever. But obviously, you, you you'd benefit from the um, from the robustness that 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 gives you, right? Like you don't have to worry too much about like scaling and translation and whatever of your.
1: But then your you features. would. You would feed them into a simpler model. So how? Would yeah, that
0: work? what 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 you would then use is um, the trees themselves. Every tree as a as a categorical feature, as it were, mm-hmm. and, and and so then your logistic regression model, which which would be training online has a bunch of inputs that are categorical, which are like the, the outputs of each of the trees, right? So it's basically like re- relearning, kind of relearning the weights associated to, to each leaf.
1: Oh, then, interesting. Wow. I, yeah. I, I have not heard of that. So the, the thing that's changing then is the sort of the combination of the two. You train a gradient-boosted yeah. tree, then you pull the trees apart and then you relearn the, the weights of each tree yeah. in the combination.
0: Yeah, it's it's a it's a hack, right? Like it's not a fully backpropagated model, right? Because sure, sure. you, you train your trees every few weeks you know like uh-huh. whenever you know um and then and then you have logistic regression that you know um takes uh, as inputs both you know like the the binary indicators right like every one of the trees you train like hundreds maybe a couple of thousand you know trees mm-hmm. so you have like and, and each of the trees has like dozen leaves or like whatever uh-huh. and so and, and you treat those as like uh you know one out of 12 kind of like encoding but then you're learning a weight for each of those and you're kind of like learning that's sort of like in real time and then you have other other, uh, features that, you know, that, that go in side by side that can actually be sort of continuous features as well. Cool. So that's a setup. That's what I found when I got there. And so the, <laughs> the, the key decision, since you wanted to talk about like building applied ML and all that mm-hmm. was the, the dilemma was the following it was like, okay, well, this thing is begging, you know. For a proper neural net right to to, to be thrown at it, right like, uh-huh. like it's almost like we've handcrafted a Frankenstein you know type of neural net by, by having you know b- b- like these trees you know with logistic regression concatenated to it, but like we're not even like training it together right like we we, we first train the trees and we kind of chop the output and then we kind of plug this other thing to it, and then that's the thing that we train mm-hmm. so it, it was very obvious that doing that you know would probably uh, give us uh, gains. This was and this is actually, so 20,
1: 2012, it was obvious that a neural net would, would give you an improvement. I'm trying to remember. Sort of. Was that obvious to everyone?
0: No. No, because if you think about the, um, I think it was uh, Rus-, Rus Salakudinov and uh, Jeff Hinton, and I might be forgetting some co-authors, so I deeply apologize because I've, I've had a, a long day already. Um, <laughs> apologies. But this was like the, the big ImageNet paper. Right was with convenants was I think from 2012 if I'm not
1: mistaken. Mm-hmm. That sounds right, yeah.
0: Yeah. So I don't think I, I don't think it was clear. I think this was like the the beginning of the hockey stick, you know. Mm. But I think it wasn't clear. If if that had been like two years later, then it would have been obvious, right? But right. Right. At the time, it wasn't clear yet, and you know, you always need a couple of months, you know, to realize that something happened.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, the the thing that I that really struck me was that the the time it took from doing an experiment, which a, a lot of it was really like feature engineering. Maybe there were some experiments with tuning, you know, your learning ratios and turn, and tuning like the architecture of your trees and the architecture of your, I mean, logistic regression, although there isn't a lot of architecture to be tuned, um, with your logistic regression, like the, the time to go from someone has an idea and starts to do some offline experiments to you actually mm-hmm. have a, your, your, your new click prediction or conversion prediction model for, you know, mobile or whatever in production, right. And actually like materializing those gains would be several weeks Mm -hmm. it'd be like sometimes six weeks sometimes two months Mm -hmm. and I thought holy crap that's not that's not great right Mm -hmm. and so the crossroads in a way you know on the one hand you're like okay this thing I have is is simple but we're still getting a lot of gains by tuning it right Mm -hmm. and on the other hand I can go and just like replace my Soyuz with something like sophisticated right (laughs) so that was like the that was like the the crossroads um that I so do you do you want to know what I decided to do?
1: Tell me, yes. I feel like you're kind of picking on the Soyuz. I don't. Know. <laughs> I didn't oh, know that was the <laughs> metaphor for oh, a so, rudimentary thing.
0: Uh, it's true that the Soyuz. Well, I mean, I think the Soyuz is rudimentary in the sense that, like the 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 computer systems that the Soyuz has in it mm, are probably. 50 years old or like, I don't something like that. Right. right but they, right. they work, right? <laughs> so so the, the reason I use this to use analogy is more like it gets the job done, you know? It's like, you know, a, a gradient boosted decision tree and logistic regression, right? It's like, it's just as an aside, one thing that triggers me these days a little bit is I see people, you know, jump straight, you know, if they have to solve an NLP task, they'll use either some sort of a sequence model. They're using LSTM, they'll use, mm-hmm. uh, what I mean, I guess is the transformer or like whatever.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's like, and sometimes you go like, did you try like a max ant model? Did you try like a, like a good old, you know, bag of words with logistic regression? Mm-hmm. And the surprising thing is that I would say between 20 and 50% of the time, you get the same results. And, okay. <laughs> and then you're like, did you realize how much cheaper this thing is, Right in terms of anything you care about, right? Whether it's like uh, training time, you know, inference time, whatever. Right? So, yeah. So, so basically the big bet there was to say, well, what we need to do here is we need to actually, um, allow, um, our teams to, uh, to ship every week. And that was like the, the big model it was like ship every week, mm-hmm. do whatever it takes so that every week we can ship new models to production. And what that meant was like, oh, we need to dramatically accelerate, um, You know that path from I have a new model that I could put in production to like it's in production Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and that and and that kind of like triggered five years of work
1: (laughs) (laughs) and so what were the keys I mean tell me the pieces that you needed to build in order to allow that to happen because I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are thinking I'd like to ship a model every week what do you what do you need in order to do that safely
0: it was many things um at different at different levels so at a very low level, it's about fitting in, you know, seamlessly in like whatever infrastructure you have for for inference, right? And adopting some sort of like standards, which seems super easy and trivial, but even that you shouldn't take for granted. the The, the part that I thought was even more interesting is that I think what was slowing people down was probably two or three things. One was... It was extremely difficult to share work between people because people would be running uh, experiments in their own uh, dev servers. And even like having, you know, like as we all know, like configs aren't or back then weren't sort of easily portable. Like it would just take you, you know, I don't know, like, like a couple of hours or like, you know, whatever. You'd have like an energy barrier before I could actually play with what you had done, right? The second thing, which I think is related, is that you, you started to have a lot of teams reinventing the wheel. So a lot of the work that was being done was actually duplicate, because um, because as the number of surfaces on which we, we we showed you know ads sort of kept increasing and the types of modalities kept increasing, you kind of had like teams that focused on like one of those voxels in your in your you know tensor of of of, of, of configurations, and they wouldn't sort of easily talk to each other or like the work wouldn't be discoverable, right? So thing number one was like. Automate everything. You have to automate everything. You have to make it ridiculously uh, easy and you have to abstract, you know, everything from the engineering trying to deploy something, right? Especially because we're growing very fast and you get a lot of people who are joining the company fresh from from, from somewhere. Maybe they, they are good applied researchers, but they're not infra people necessarily. So abstracting and automating, you know, super important. The second, yeah. shareability, right? Like make yeah. sure that you abstract and encapsulate things in a way where they're like super easy to share. So I can see... What input features are working for you? You know, if you're working on like conversion prediction models for in-game ads or like whatever, you know, I can super easily see that. Obviously, you have infra work again, right? Like, cause, you know, the way we, we store and represent data is very heterogeneous. So there's like, it's a pain in the butt usually to, even if you're only looking at like reproducing training, you know, depending on like what your setup is, that's like work. But then going, you know, obviously the way you run your data pipelines, when you're, training offline versus when you're trying to serve in real time, you know, is, is different almost always. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, you know, when, when you're online, you're on, on a budget, so you want to make as few calls as, as possible when you're serving. So you've got you to gotta sort of figure out how to abstract those things and again, like hide all complexity. Mm-hmm. And then the, the third one, which I think is really, really interesting, is really like think about collaboration by, by design, right? Like how can you build an environment where I go in and I can see every single experiment anyone has run? And I can go and and by clicking, I can see, first of all, who they are. Who they are is is huge, right? Because then I know who to ask, especially if I'm new to the company and you have a company that's growing fast, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the the equivalent of your git blame or or whatever is super important. You need to know who people are. Mm -hmm. The second one, again, is like, So much is um, wasted in terms of replicating experiments that someone has already done. So like bookkeeping, you know, is is extremely important. And then the ability to just like beg, borrow and steal, you know, bits of pieces, either of like feature computations or, or like models, you know, we were like exposing learning curves and things like that as well. So you can actually sort of browse them and... And then another component, and I'm not being super organized here. I think I've said it's three things and I'm at like the fifth (laughs) thing already. But like another one is like try to be as modular, you know, uh, as possible, right? And and if possible as well, like language agnostic and separate out, you know, separate out like the language uh, or, or the, you know, platform that you're using to kind of specify whatever models you're building from the, the definition of a workflow and the execution of a workflow. So, so really, really abstracting that away, right? And sort of thinking about, okay, an ML workflow is an ML workflow. And I don't care, you know, if you're specifying your models in Matlab, Octave, Python, PyTorch, you know, TensorFlow, like whatever it is that you're doing, uh, mm-hmm. a, a lot of the bread and butter that you're doing is kind of common, right? So really layer it, modularize it um, was, was sort of huge.
1: You know, it's interesting. I feel like the things that you're saying are the things that all ML leaders want that, that I talk to. But I think the place that they get tripped up, I mean, all the benefits that you're saying totally make sense. But I think the the sort of downside is that it requires getting everyone's buy-in into kind of a standard way of yeah. doing things. And I'm curious how you got that because, you know, ML yeah. practitioners are so hard to hire and they're often yeah. opinionated and working in different parts of the org. How did you get them all to to buy into the same Often opinionated. You,
0: often opinionated. You say, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to meet uh, <laughs> one that is not opinionated. Um, <laughs> sometimes not opinionated. Um, yeah, it's tricky, right? And this is actually so. You're you're putting the finger on on a on an amazing point, which is really uh, uh, almost like uh, change management, right? Uh, very very hard. Several reasons why it's hard. You know, reason number one. In any, in any fast moving company where you have low hanging fruit, I mean, this is not unique to ML, right? Who's going to actually pause and, do, and clean up the kitchen, right? And, and like pay back some tech debt or, or like build infrastructure so you move faster. It's like, you're almost like, hey, why don't you do it? You know, like, I, right. I, don't, I don't feel like doing it myself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like one, one uh, challenge. The, the other one, of course, is a, is a sense of, of pride that people have, right? I mean, and especially, you know, I used to be in academia. And in academia, the thing that determines your worth is almost like uh, the praise you get for the work that you do, but you put your name on your papers, right? So right. culturally, culturally, it's tricky, right? To sort of say, "I'm going to surrender some of that, right, uh, for the greater good." So the the tactic that we uh, took, one of them was just to be ridiculously laser focused. So look, the one thing that I should have clarified is I never dreamt that one day I would build the applied machine learning team at Facebook. That was not the intent, you know? Like I was in ads, we're focusing ads. But even within ads, we already started to have several teams working on several aspects of the problem. So at least I, you know, we worked on generating alignment and a vision within ads. And that was not like a million people, you know, that was just like a couple of dozen people, right? And we were, I think, all feeling the pain and the urgency to move fast. So it was, you know... It was semi-obvious that that this was going to be good. It was a bold bet, so you need to kind of generate alignment, both you know, on, on the people who are deploying things and doing experiments every day, but also obviously get management, you know, to give you air cover because things are going to slow down, right? Like I remember uh, talking to my manager at Fields Coffee end of 2012, where like revenue was still you know not picking up, and he was asking me, "Hey, you, you haven't been shipping models all that." Often, like what's going on, and I'm like, oh, actually, we're going to slow down even more. And it was like, mm-hmm. explain. And then, <laughs> right. and then, and then you explain. You get into the details. You get like buy-in on the vision at all levels. And then, but you keep it very, very narrow, right? Mm-hmm. And then, what happened once we started to have progress and stuff started to move faster and like you saw productivity increase, then, then we started to talk to the feed uh, ranking team. And then the feed ranking team, you know, we decided to like join forces for like uh, summer 2013. And that was really interesting because there again you have to just be laser focused right like um don't don't think about the features first don't think abstract first don't think about like you know it's not like platform first and then we see what happens it's like be extremely concrete like here's here's the types of things i want to make work and also just accept that one day you'll have to rewrite it uh, and, and that they came
1: mm-hmm.
0: um but for now you know you want to prove the hero scenario right like you want to prove like hey this can actually be amazing, right? So that was the approach. It was like very, very extremely laser focused. Start very small, start adding people, you know, build almost like a like a community that that, that supports each other. Really go like, you know, from, from a core and then start expanding.
1: It's interesting, you know, at Weights and Biases, you know, we make a tool and I actually didn't really realize how similar our tool's vision is to what you were building like our hope is to to really help with collaboration and reproducibility yeah and it's sort of the same idea of like we really wanted people to be able to find the person that made the thing and not have to you know redo all the work from scratch and i think we have maybe even more trouble than you getting buy-in right because you know no one owes us anything right like right. you know why right. would someone want to you know use our tool and i feel like for us a big part of it is like showing little wins to the individual practitioner like i feel like there's little details in our product that we try to you know just like give like a um you know, something helpful right out of the gate to um, you know someone new coming in before they do the collaboration and, and before they have to really buy into our system. I wonder if there's anything like that for you, or people are like, oh, I want that. Like, I want to be able to see the system metrics of my um, runs or something like that that, that got people to use your stuff.
0: Yeah no, excellent excellent question. I'm just uh,
1: minding you selfishly for features for a product, really. <laughs> that, was, that was that was so shameless, yeah. So I so, know. so so obvious.
0: So one 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 big caveat, uh, Lucas, that I have to, to say, of course, is that you know when I was very involved with this stuff in the in the early days, um, there was like already you know uh, like eight, uh, seven, and six years ago. So so I know that things have changed a lot. Like and, of and I know that you have like. Open source tools today, which if we had had them, we would have just used them directly, uh, including maybe waste and biases products, right? So, your question is if you set aside like the collaboration benefits and all that, like just in terms of pure individual contributor, you know, productivity, why, why would I care?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I have both news and I have bad news, I guess. The good news <laughs> and bad news. I think, I think the, the bad news maybe is that some of the problems we solved were actually a bit Facebook specific. So, mm-hmm. so I think that that's not going to be useful to you. But like, Uh, In terms of like, uh, you know, abstraction, right? And like just the ability to almost like at the click of a button, like the fact that you could actually clone a workflow. I'm going to give you an example. Here's an example. So you're the Instagram uh, ML team and Instagram's never been ranked before. Like Instagram's feed has been shown like in uh, decreasing uh, in chronological order, right? Mm -hmm. From most recent to to less recent. And your task with like, hey, (laughs) design me a, a ranking system for Instagram right that's kind of like a tall order but imagine now that you have an environment where um, you can actually just like look at uh, the production system that ranks f- newsfeed mm-hmm. there's a lot you can borrow there right um, and so I think just like just like the ability to borrow um, uh, you know whether there's like the features that seem to be working the best you know the models the sort of a training schedule, the uh, hyperparameters, all of that is, is, is like a big thing. In parallel to that, you have like abstractions, right? Like, uh, again, like at Facebook, I don't even know how many distinct and mutually incompatible, you know, uh, data stores we have, uh, <laughs> uh, but you can imagine, right? So, but, uh-huh. and, and, the, and the fact that the tool will actually abstract that for you is, is very useful um, as well. Then if you have to build a workflow yourself, building workflows is a pain, right? Like if you have to do them from, if you don't have a tool to build workflows, it's just a pain. And then another one, tools for debugging You know, and automation. So I'll give you an example of, of a couple of things. Tool for automation, automatic feature selection. The fact, that, the fact that you have a tool that actually scans for every feature you could possibly use. And then while you're sleeping, it's just making sure that you have maximum machine utilization uh, and you're just like doing whatever feature selection algorithm you want, I don't care, it doesn't matter. But it's just doing work for you, mm-hmm. uh, including doing the So true, true stories is uh, ads engineers would come in the morning on Monday. And they would see like proposals for mm-hmm. new models, and you're like, oh, this looks good. Like I get a couple of you know 0.1 whatever percent points of gain in like whatever metric, and that's good. Uh, the other one is one very simple reason uh, ML systems fail is because some data pipeline uh, fails, right? And and again, like if you have to be checking ad hoc, it's a pain. Imagine that you have like this beautiful dashboard, you know, with colors and whatever that just tell you what features have uh are not working and in which way are they not working anymore uh you know is it that you have like statistical things like they still produce uh, valid values but they're like the same all the time or is it that you get like things that are not a number like what what the hell is going on right that's like super useful as well right or like tools to look at your learning curves and whatever so yeah these are like a bunch of examples of things which like you know if you're an ML engineer you you want
1: that stuff totally that that totally makes sense I want to um, make sure we we leave plenty of time for um, you know the other thread of questions, which is you know the new work you're doing is I think it says on, on LinkedIn you're the tech lead for responsible AI, yeah. Um, which is uh, it sounds like a, a tall order. I'm, I mean, there's so many possible questions here. I was kind of wondering what would be the most interesting, but I think the I guess the, the genuine question that's top of mind for me is always walk me through a real decision like where it wasn't obvious. What to do, and, and by some kind of analysis or thinking about it, bring your expertise. You were able to kind of guide Facebook to a to a better decision. Is that does something come to mind?
0: I'm going to start from the India elections. This was the biggest election in, in human history, uh, with almost a billion eligible voters. So, what's the challenge, and why, and where does AI come in? Well, the challenge is that you know there's a lot of concerns of election interference through the spread of information, which is either, you know, false or misleading or voter suppression or like whatever it might be. Right. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And, and of course, you know, the way you address this, if you're Facebook or a similar company is you create guidelines for like what things, you know, are acceptable and whatnot. There's of course legal constraints as well. Mm -hmm. And then you just hire a bunch of humans, like as many as you can. And, mm-hmm. and you would know about that because you've, you've worked on that in the past, right? So you have like people, humans who are actually processing a queue of work, right? And that queue mm-hmm. of work is like just reviewing posts. Mm-hmm. But when, when you have a, a country the size of India and, and like the, the volumes of information or, or content that are created every day on Facebook, mm-hmm. it's just impossible. Like you cannot hire enough humans to to review like even, you know, even a distant fraction of, of everything. So it's impossible, right? Right. So, so the way you use AI is use AI to prioritize human work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way you do this is you, for example, you train, you know, uh, like, a, like a, a, a type of classifiers that we that we have used. We call them uh, civic classifiers. And what they do is they try to tell whether the piece of content is just like a picture of a cat, which is mm-hmm. like, whatever, doesn't matter. Or, or people like me, I'm a runner, you know, is it like, did I post a new run on Strava? Right? It's like, whatever, he doesn't. Doesn't matter for the elections or or whether it's like actually someone discussing something that's actually relevant, right? Uh, Social uh, or or political or or civic issues, right? Mm -hmm. And then at least make sure that that type of content gets coverage. Okay. So what's the challenge? We're talking about resource allocation. We're talking about like you have this set of humans that we're paying to protect the elections from interference. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And now the question is, okay, and we're using AI to prioritize our work. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens if your NLP Works only for Hindi.
1: Wait, sorry. Could you even back up a second? Because this is probably yeah. obvious to you, but it's not totally obvious to me. Like, what? Assuming you had like unlimited, you know, human resources to to do something, what is the thing you're trying to do? I mean, obviously, you're not trying to block everything that's on the topic oh, sorry. of an election. So, yeah, yeah. What's what's the yeah, goal? Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. I should have explained that. You, you will block things if they if they violate, you know, uh, laws, right? So, if you if you have like uh, I don't know, like defamation of like public figures you know with like like lies, or you know just like illegal illegal content or mm-hmm. or um reduce the the distribution of, of of things that are harmful so it's it's both like filtering and, and reduction reducing distribution of of things that violate our our community standards or like or like laws so that that's the action that you're that you're taking with the combination of like humans and, and ai mm-hmm. and, and so the challenge there again is like uh you know you know, if, if you look at this from like a fairness point of view, maybe your definition of fairness is that if we're investing a certain amount of human resources to do this job, that we want to make sure that everyone in India gets protection from this type of, of harmful uh, content. Yeah. And then the question there becomes like, what, what, what does that mean? Right. Because <laughs> if you think about algorithmic fairness and bias, you know, if you're thinking about like using AI to recommend jobs to people. Then you get into like, and you're in the US, you think about like protected categories. You think about gender, age, you know, race or ethnicity and stuff like that, right? Where there's like anti-discrimination laws that exist. But if you think about this problem in India, you're like, oh, politically, what are the hot areas, right? And then immediately, you know, when you work with local people, you know, it's things like uh, caste or religion. But obviously, we, we don't have that data. And it's not clear that it's not clear that we should, right, have that data. So in the end, you do a bunch of work and you figure out well what can I do. And so we ended up using like language and and region.
1: Sorry again, if, if you had caste and ethnicity, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm showing my ignorance here. But if if you had right. those things, what what would you do with that? Like what what would be the fair thing to do that you're you're trying to do? So
0: so the challenge with, with fairness, right, and that's where like uh, we're gonna go back all the way to music uh, somehow is that there isn't one definition of fairness, right? Uh, if you look at philosophy, whether it's like moral or political philosophy, or you look at the law, or even you look at like the vibrant community in the computer science community and machine learning, right? Who's thinking about algorithmic bias. One common pattern is that you have multiple definitions of fairness that are mutually incompatible. So you, you have to pick one, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in this case, the one that you could pick is you could say, well, I wanna make sure that everyone, irrespective of their you know, caste or, or religion, is going to see content that has received a comparable amount of protection against uh, against harmful or like you know uh, co- content that is basically misleading or you know imagine like there's like voter suppression type of content there right that spreads lies about like I mean there's even stuff like just lying about when the election day is or like whatever you know
1: <laughs> like I you see then, okay and I see you, that thanks that's helpful yeah yeah so- then
0: you then you kind of miss it right or, or or maybe like maybe lying about what what a particular politician stands for right like just sort of putting out something that's completely false. So like, whatever, right. 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 So you you want to, yeah,
1: go ahead. So, so I guess one, one way, just to repeat back what you're saying, one way would be like, we want to make sure everyone like across groups like caste or religion gets the same level of protection. Correct. By by actual humans looking at the content.
0: That's exactly right.
1: Why might that not be like the most fair approach? Well, would there be a different argument for a different yeah, yeah.
0: You have situations where so, so here, you know, uh this would be like an equal treatment type of type of argument where, where you would say, you know, we want to treat everybody uh the same. And equal treatment is, I think, in, in many cultures, uh like the, the sort of like the first instinct that 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 you have. But but you could think about other things, right? You could think uh on on the one hand you could dial things more towards uh equity. And in in, in equity you could look at like historical uh uh you know disadvantages that some group might have had right like is there is there a case where like historically you know some castes and religions are are privileged compared to others and and like the pressure you know or like um the amount of misinformation or like you know if you think about the US, right, like not every group in the US has historically had equal access to voting, right? And, and even today, like voter suppression efforts are not um, uniformly distributed, like some some groups are actually more targeted than others, right? So you could actually say, no, I'm actually going to understand, you know, whether I should prioritize outcomes for, for, for some groups over others, right? And, right? and, and you know, if you think about like, um, you know, there's many, there's many sort of public Policies in society that actually sort of aim at you know uh, focusing more on, on, on some groups that have been disadvantaged.
1: I see. And so, what did you do? So
0: in this case, we 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 went for the equal treatment you know approach, and then what we did this triggered a whole amount of work. You know, we first of all we we don't have caste and religion, and we there's many reasons, there's many risks you know uh, why uh, a corporation shouldn't have you know certain type of demographic information. Uh, there's like a lot of uh, examples in history why it's it's just dangerous to have repositories of certain, you know, uh, demographic characteristics. Sure. So what we did is we used reasonable alternatives like uh, language and region, right? And so we mm-hmm. said, okay, we want to make sure that all regions in India and like not all languages because there's like a huge amount of languages in India. But like, I think we went for like the top, I don't remember anymore, top 15 plus minus, you know, la- languages are sort of, Well protected, And then you can get into things, okay, how do I translate that into math and code, right? Uh And so so you need to look at many levels, right? Like one, you need to look, uh, you know, the most basic thing is when you look at the data, you look at two things. You look at representation, and then you look at biases in the labels, right? Uh So representation, make sure that across, you know, you build yourself your matrix of like, you know, regions and languages, and make sure that for each of these buckets, you have a sufficient amount of uh, labeled training data. And then and then and then once you're in, in one of these buckets, you kind of you, you get yourself some, uh, some, some ground truth data, and that would be like a very long conversation to figure out what that is. but like
1: yeah e-
0: expensive high quality data that you can use as a reference, right? right. And then you kind of measure, you know, you, you look at the difference in errors that you have in your labeling process across all these buckets. And you want to make sure that you don't have systematic differences, but that, of course that's not enough, right? Then then you actually look at your, your models themselves. Right? You, you train your model, and you look at things like, oh, you know, in the in the prediction errors, do I have you know systematic uh, differences? And one cool thing to look at if you have binary classifiers, uh, and you're using, you know, here you would be using the probability that something is you know civic uh, content to prioritize uh, review. In, in that context, is very reasonable. To use actually a uh, calibration to look at the whole calibration curve, you know, um, mm-hmm. and make sure that my calibration curve, right, which which maps scores to actual outcome rates, make sure that those curves look similar, you know, for different groups, right? That I'm not like over predicting, you know, for one group and under predicting for another. Because if I were over predicting for a particular language, then I would be allocating more human resources to that language, and if I'm under predicting for another, I'm allocating fewer resources. But it's not justified because you know the it, it, that doesn't reflect you know the, the actual volume of content that actually needs to be reviewed uh, for both.
1: but is it I guess is it possible that some language has more um, banned content and then how, how can you be sure that it seems like your yeah. model would sort of naturally use that as like a feature in the model and then it would sort of naturally get over, Index like how do you back that out?
0: I think I think that's how you that, that's where you use calibration, right? So um, if you think about a you know a, a calibration curve, you're looking at how you know your your, your scatter plot of like um, you know like you you group your scores, right? So the the thing is, for a score, at zero to one, which we interpret as a probability right. uh, of, of of something being you know needs review, right? Uh uh-huh. um, it's true that the distribution of scores is going to be different between languages, right? Like if, if one language is, is, is being more under attack, then you're going to see more stuff with a higher probability. But what mm-hmm. you really want is like once you, once you bucket you know, things by score,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you want to kind of look within those buckets, what's the actual percentage of content that was violating in that, in, in, you know, in, in that bucket? And you want to make sure that you know, 0.6 means roughly 60%. For any language, right, and then you know the number of uh, pieces of content that fall within that bucket is going to be different between languages, but that's not that's not a problem, right? I mean, and and eventually, as a result of the distributions being different of scores, you'll end up investing more or less resources in, in a language or another, but at least you know you have apples to apples in terms of your risk uh, risk scores.
1: I see. So you let the model use the language, but then you back it out. In sort of a post, anal- a, like a post analysis, based on the actual performance, am, am you, I explaining it right? I mean, if
0: you are using NLP and you are building like uh, uh, different classifiers for different languages, then inevitably,
1: right, right,
0: I- I- inevitably you are you are using the, the language in like your NLP model. I mean, having said this, of course, we have like um, you know we have like a cross-lingual embeddings and all these fancy things, uh, obviously, but you know you, you still need like 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 some sort of training data. Um, that's a, you know, the, the question of whether you should use an input signal or not, you know, is a long and fascinating discussion as well. And I think it is, uh, in my view, somewhat orthogonal to many of the, of the ways in which you would make sure, you know, that, that you have procedural fairness in your in your classifier so we need a, another a couple of hours to discuss that because <laughs> that's actually a very active um topic one of the papers that explains as well is uh cynthia works and, and and co-workers a paper called uh, fairness through awareness um probably butchering the title is more to it but th- this is the debate. you know we're like oh you know if you're trying to be uh fair across genders when you're recommending job offers should you actually not use gender as an input to your algorithm or should you use it and there's examples that illustrate, you know, both positions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I don't think it's as easy as to say, oh, if I don't use gender as an input to my algorithm, then I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be fine. And the reason is simple, right? Is that a) you have a lot of features that correlate with gender anyway, mm-hmm. but then also if you think about it from a causal perspective, you're going to have like certain things you can measure which have opposing effects, you know, depending on whether you're a male or a female. You know, for one. Uh, uh, females carry babies and, and and get gaps in their in their CVs. And so you know, is the effect of a gap in your CV the same? You know, depending on your circumstances, that's not clear, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, causality actually is um, probably one of the most exciting uh, you know lenses on on fairness in many ways. But it's mm-hmm. uh, super early days.
1: Interesting. I I guess um, to ask you another question is probably another long long question, and this is one of the ones I always worry about with. The fairness and AI stuff. Um, I guess, how do you engage with the people who are actually like affected by these decisions? Like, it, it always makes me a little nervous. This idea that, like, you know, scientists go in and sort of like get to decide yeah. what's fair. And I can see, I can kind of see why, right? It's like it's important that someone kind of understands the algorithms. For, that's one point of view. Um, but I, I mean, like, you know, yeah. how did you engage with the folks in India who are affected by this to even decide what's the fair thing to do?
0: It's essential for AI practitioners to understand that responsible AI is not primarily an AI problem. It's as simple as that. And you, you pointed to the question of governance, who should decide? It's not the AI practitioner. It's not me for sure. So how do you, what does that mean in practice? Yeah. In practice, what it means is you build something like, um, like a fairness maturity framework. Um, we're building one like this. You work with ethicists, with lawyers uh, on, on building it. You try to capture the different interpretations of, of fairness uh, that exist. And what this ends up being is, is not a tool that tells you what to do. It's a tool that, that gives you a big menu of questions that you should ask and consider. Mm. And then what you build is you build processes of, of consultation um, where where you sort of like put the options on the table and then you have like a like a decision framework, right? Where you sort of weigh, you know, pros and cons and risks. And And, and again, like, look... This has been used way before uh, AI, right? Like these kinds of risk assessments, you know, and the decision processes, consultation processes, and so on. And, you know, what, one example of this, I think that is quite interesting is um, Facebook has built this external advisory board that is not it's not fully rolled out yet, but it's like 40 people, if I remember correctly, who, have, who, who, who represent all kinds of like countries and, and political views and other types of views, right? And their goal is going to be in the context of content moderation to to kind of look at all these edge cases that are hard, right, and then come up with like recommendations. You know, obviously they're going to carry a very heavy burden of representing you know lots of people, but they don't work for Facebook, right? Like they're they're an external body. Uh-huh. And I think that one of the, if you want ideas for what to do next, you know, after after weights and biases, I feel like <laughs> I feel like although I'm sure you're going to be busy with this for a while, is like I think the question of um, Question of governance in in AI is is and how to build infrastructure and this is like people infrastructure right um, for transparency for accountability you know for risk assessments you, you see the recent uh, EU paper um, on AI scratches the surface by asking you know some of the big questions that need to be answered for responsible AI I think we're only we're only getting started here but the thing that I'm most excited about is that AI is going to replace humans in decision making across the range of decisions that people make in any domain, right? And I think most of the time it's it's gonna be a huge improvement. But now all of a sudden, we need to go through like thousands of years, you know, of, of political science, right? On like how do societies govern themselves and kind of bring that in into AI, right? So that's a pretty freaking daunting task but I think this is what we're talking about and every investment that I see in this is orders of magnitude smaller than it needs to be
1: you know, so when we were last talking we were talking about an actual kind of case study that thought was really interesting on on voting in India and stopping the spread of misinformation and how you know there isn't like kind of one definition of fairness and you realize, you know you you kind of give people a menu of options which I think is a really interesting a really interesting perspective i guess i'm 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 kind of wondering if you could say a little more about you know what might be on that menu of um of fairness right like i I think it's so interesting when different people have different ideas of what's fair and actually like you say it's not your role to resolve it, but you must you must have opinions on on what feels fair and not
0: yeah yeah, of course no that makes a lot of sense i think the the most important thing to realize first of all is that. Fairness is is a bit of a social construct in a way. Um, it, it depends a lot on on context, and it depends a lot on how a particular society has decided to govern itself. Right. So f- fairness ends up being political uh, in- inevitably. So mm-hmm. let's uh, let's try to ground this with a very concrete example. Right. So um, here's here's three possible uh, interpretations of, of fairness that. That find you know that that resonate both with you know uh, moral philosophy interpretations, but also with with legal interpretations, and finally with mathematical interpretations because the computer science community is also building you know metrics of algorithmic bias. All right, so he, here's the three. Right, um, the the first one could be uh, minimum quality of of service. Uh, this is also known as minimum threshold uh, in in philosophy, and the idea there is that. Uh, You you want an AI, for example, to work uh, well enough for everybody. And well enough might mean, you know, if you have a computer vision system that detects people, right, or detects faces to be able to put like masks on them or whatever, that it works well enough, you know, across things like uh, skin tones and skin reflectance and age and gender and and other characteristics, right? Like that would be sort of a concrete example. It doesn't matter if it works, you know, a lot better for a group than another as long as it works, you know, above a certain, you know, precision recall, you know, for for everybody. Mm -hmm. The the, the second interpretation would be equality, right? So if we go back to the India misinformation example, one Mm -hmm. question there could be you know if i have some uh, measure uh, of accuracy for my i think we were talking about the civic classifier that that basically identifies you know among all of the posts about cats and dogs on facebook you know what are the ones that are actually discussing political issues right like like maybe mm-hmm. you know the the political agenda of a particular politician or party right mm-hmm. and, and you know again like to recap we want to find those because we have limited um resources in terms of human reviewers that let like, look at content and check if they violate our policies or, or the law. And so you mm-hmm. want the AI to basically prioritize those cues essentially, mm-hmm. right? That, this is something Lucas that I know you understand very well because you, you, you've worked on, on sort of human uh, human computation a lot. So, um, so back to equality, in, in India obviously languages and regions uh, have a big uh, social significance right because they they align with with uh, religion they align with caste and they align with other sort of important uh, sort of so- social uh, dimensions so y- imagine that your your civic classifier you know uh, works well enough for everybody uh, for all mm-hmm. languages and regions but imagine that it's like under predicting a little bit, you know, for, for some language and like overpredicting a little bit for another language. So what would happen is that we would be allocating more human resources for the, for the language where it overpredicts and, and a bit too few for the one where it underpredicts, right? So there, we actually want to have a higher standard in a way of, of fairness. We want to say, look, minimum, minimum quality of services is, is, is maybe not good enough. We want to make sure that we're offering equal, you know, protection against misinformation to everybody as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And then the third the third interpretation of, um, of fairness which which is sort of widely accepted would be to go from equality to equity.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so when we when we think about equity we no longer think about equal treatment, right? We think about is there any group that deserves special consideration? Right, so we're living this in the U.S. right now, obviously with a with a big awareness and awakening around uh, uh, racial justice, right? Where we're obviously, you know, we're paying special attention to the Black community in the U.S. And the reason we're doing that is because of uh, historical structural disadvantages, right? So if you took this to India, there might be a there might be a legitimate question. Some people might ask, Hey, actually, you know, maybe historically there's been some some groups, some regions, some languages in India that have suffered more from manipulation or injustice so therefore we actually are going to allocate extra resources to make sure that that group is really protected because you know given the same amount of disinformation or misinformation the harm to that group will be bigger uh, relatively speaking right and so th- th- these are questions that you know an ai engineer like me should be asking but not answering it's really important to to basically escalate those questions you know to uh, the local team, to policy experts, right uh, find ways to involve you know external people to give to give an, an opinion, so that's what I mean with the, with a the menu of options. Each of those translates in math and in code to a different choice, but that choice I should just I, I should not make neither deliberately nor accidentally by just like picking something that looks reasonable mathematically if I don't understand what the implications are.
1: do you find that um, it's easy to articulate? those choices to a non-technical audience? I feel like you're framing it in a very technical way. Like, is it is it clear to people like what, what they're choosing?
0: Let me understand your question. So who who would be the audience more concretely?
1: Well, I guess like, I'm imagining, you know, you're saying like, hey, do we want to kind of treat all regions equally um, in, in, in the India example or something else, right? Right. And then that something else might be like, you know, we prefer to like over predict some regions. Yeah. And I'm trying to picture. I guess that part makes sense, but it seems like actually there's sort of like this other question of like if we if we wanted to sort of um, do something that I think you know is kind of like affirmative action right, right. in college admissions. I'm picturing. Sure. Um, so if you want to do that, actually, then you have to to get someone to tell you like kind of exactly the tuning that th- that they want, right? And I'm I'm not sure I could even come up with like what's you know exactly the fair amount of. Um, the fair distribution to apply. I'm not even sure how I would answer that or I'm not even sure how I would like ask someone that question in a way that I would get a useful answer out of them. We certainly don't like walk around in our heads with like exactly. Yeah. A particular distribution that feels the most fair.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and I think that's exactly the reason why um, equity is, is the hardest uh, of these three um, lenses on 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 fairness, right? So I think in practice, you'll find that most teams, most product teams, most uh, uh, AI engineers will be either um, asking questions of minimum quality of service, right? Uh, And and if you want, we can talk about how to operationalize that. It's it's surprisingly easy, actually. Um, Or or questions of of equality, of equal treatment, which is conceptually easy, uh, but a bit harder to implement. When it comes to questions of equity, these are not really questions that are directly addressed to AI engineers, you know? These are really questions that are um, that, you know, the, the overarching leader of a product needs to be reasoning about, about equity, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you a concrete example. Adam Mosseri, who leads uh, the Instagram team, has started to make uh, public posts that you can, that you can Google um, about um, Instagram and equity. And and basically what he's starting to do, he's starting to, he's initiating a, a, a dialogue where he's saying, hey, we will put the interests of communities above the interests of Instagram. If we feel that a certain product, you know, causes unintended harm to, to a community or that it doesn't serve it as well as, as we intended, then we will actually stop and, and, and rethink it, right? You know, what does that translate exactly? You know, like, like if I you know, if I'm running ads, right, and I feel like oh, ads isn't working, you know, for everybody, does that mean like I shut it down? Do I have a percent? Do I say oh, I cut my losses at minus ten percent, or, or you know, like if I'm a, actually, we don't need to stay within, we don't need to stay within uh, the Facebook Inc. you know sphere. I have close friends uh, at Spotify, you know, and at Netflix. The same questions uh, occur there as well. In like, hey, you know, do we inject some diversity? Of content right do we do we allow some producers some musicians you know some filmmakers that are maybe a little bit in the in the shade you know to kind of mm-hmm. pop up and then what's the hit that we're taking in terms of like our engagement metrics right in terms of like how many songs people listen you know per day or how many movies or or, or shows people watch you know per, per day and stuff like that um, i don't think there's an exact science on that you know uh, at all but it's a very real question that that many people are sort of uh, reasoning about. And th- the last thing I'll say is that uh, w- one of the one of the big challenges is, is a question of governance. And I think you were alluding to that. It's a question of who decides, right? And, and if you think about it, we have democratic processes, right? Like, uh, I live in Mountain View. The, the city of Mountain View decides where we put bicycle lanes. And of course, they're going to slow down traffic, you know, but they're going to create other benefits. Uh, they're gonna desi- decide on like uh, urban density, you know, on things that are all like trade-offs, right? Um, there's obviously, you know, in, in luxury resorts and stuff like that, you know, like in, in in Truckee. I know because we recently bought a house there, and there's like, um, you know, the the city council will uh, demand that you know that that you reserve a certain part of land and 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 building, you know, for like. Uh, for like sort of less expensive, you know, uh, dwellings to sort of give access, right, to, to housing to to everyone. And I- in those cases, it's a bit easier because there's a democratic process by which, you know, that city council gets elected. There's like consulta- public consultations. I feel like in if I think about like one of the challenges that, that, that you know, that we're facing as technology companies is this idea of like, how do we bring in, you know, public deliberation and, and consultation mechanisms in the decisions we make. At Facebook, of course, we are you know we' we're, we're launching this um, external oversight board for um, content moderation which is which is almost ready to go uh, we have like the, the all, all the members identified and I think this is only the beginning I think I think that we're gonna see a lot more of this it was there was a very long answer uh, you have to cut great, me it's, a, <laughs> it's
1: a great answer and I got so I gotta ask though um, you know you talked about operationalizing and I do think that I was kind of thinking as I was asking the last question about um, you know kind of getting the, the details right I think a lot of the mistakes that you see around algorithmic Fairness—they're so glaring yeah. that probably the more important thing for most of the people that are mm. listening to this uh, interview is how do you operationalize the basic stuff? Like how do you make sure mm. your thing isn't egregiously um, unfair? Maybe maybe like your first definition. Yeah, and
0: thank you for asking that question because because obviously we should talk about equity as a society, but as but as but as engineers. There's a lot of stuff we can do to make sure that our stuff, that our crap is built right, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so, and so obviously, you know, I have I have friends at, at Twitter, obviously, and I, and I know that you know there was like a very recent uh, news new cycle on the uh, AI that automatically crops images, and and you know, like the the challenge there is that the, so, some some people, you know, externally actually tested the system and realized like, oh, if I put. If I put a picture of a white person and a black person, you know, and they're a little bit apart and I create some blank in between and it's like a, a rectangular shaped picture, then obviously there'll be some cropping, right, to to <laughs> kind of like render or something. And then, you know, disproportionately it seemed to pick the, the, the picture of the white person, right? So mm-hmm. how, how, how did that happen, right? How does something like that happen? Well, you know, uh, Twitter says they they tested, uh, you know, for, for racial bias, which is which is great before they launched this, this AI, as, as, as they should, and I, I commend them for that. But the devil, as you say, is in the details, right? Like, do I have the right, uh, you know, test sets? Did I, did I cover, you know, like um, skin tones, you know, correctly? And there's there's a bunch of work, you know, by by people like uh, Joy Boilamwini and Timnit Gebru and, and many other uh, co-workers, which is which is brilliant, right? On on having like reference papers that kind of propose methodologies for doing these things. Um, you know, what we're doing and, and my advice in general to the, to the community is uh, to invest heavily uh, in, in transparency. Uh, you know, um, We have started to do this with like uh, media manipulation and deep fakes where we've published, we've built and created data sets. And you know, this is only the beginning. I think that for um, many of these biases, whether it's in computer vision algorithms, in, in speech recognition algorithms, you know, in, in ranking algorithms, in, in whatever you want, having methodologies that, that you can publish and talk about, um, where applicable data sets, you know, that, that you can share, I think is going to be the, it's going to be the way to go.
1: I see. So investing in being transparent about how you're doing things and, and is the benefit there that you can get external people to comment on what you're doing and kind of catch, um, unexpected errors?
0: I think there's two benefits right one is accountability, right like like transparency um, implies accountability in a way right if i if if I declare to the world that I have methods and processes for testing my stuff then mm. then it better be that I have them <laughs> and it better be that that, they're, that they that they don't suck right and then right. um and then on, on the latter part on whether they suck or not, I guess like uh, it's just like open sourcing or publishing right it's the same it's the same philosophy, right like if i if I open source. My, my, my code, then, uh, often I I actually get quite a bit of constructive feedback, and uh, and you know, and, and sort of the community helps uh, improve it. To, to be clear, I mean, I think as a community at, at large, I mean, there's been a couple of really good papers. You know, Google and Microsoft have done excellent work in proposing things like, uh, you know. Uh, data sheets for data sets and fact sheets for models and, and things like that that sort of invite, you know, um, for, for transparency. But I don't think that we have, we're not at a stage where there's like standards, you know, that are sort of like widely adopted, but my prediction is that, that that's where uh, the field is going.
1: And so, I mean, how would this work if, I, I'm just channeling my audience, which is, you know, a lot of startups and, you know, companies like, you know, not, you know, Facebook or Twitter, like, how would you go about being transparent if, um you know, you're like a smaller company, like, like, would you, what would you do?
0: Yeah. Good question. Where possible use public datasets, uh, of which, of which there exists, you know, um, I'm thinking again about, you know, if you look up the work of, uh, yeah, Joy Bolamuni and Timnit Gebru and and many other authors, um, there are like reference datasets that have been proposed for things like things like, you know, um, uh, face detection and, and gender recognition and so on. Um, that's just one example there's there's a lot more out there. Um, you know m- make sure to make sure to use them as like reference data sets and maybe like even like report how your algorithms perform on those. if, if you're building like, an, like a human centric AI application right that would be one. If your startup that's using you know Azure or Google Cloud, you know if you're using any any of the big three you know like um, cloud ml providers, you know, all of them are are actually offering uh, you know libraries to uh, detect biases in in, in uh, the data and in the predictions of the model. <clears throat> De- definitely, definitely use those, right? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and and report on what you found. And then the second thing, of course, is uh, put put pressure. You know, put pressure on these companies if uh, if if they're providing you uh, some pre-learned uh, embeddings, whether it's you mm-hmm. know for computer vision or for NLP or whatever ask for transparency, you know, ask about like, um, you know, um, uh, are, are there any, any any funky things going on, you know, in, in these sort of like, uh, you know, text embeddings, because we, th- there's a bunch of papers out there, right, that, that show that if you train, you know, uh, you know, word or sentence embeddings, you know, of uh, big existing corpora, you know, like Wikipedia, whatever you want, I- inevitably, you're gonna see well-documented things right like uh you know g- gender related you know uh nouns tend to be you know tend to sort of fall closer in 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 embedded space to uh stereotypically you know male uh jobs and etc the same for for females right and that that, that could have like nasty consequences sort of uh, downstream so uh, at least you should be aware of those
1: well i guess that's a good um segue into something i i wanted to make sure i talked with you about which is you know diversity and inclusion in AI. And I, I kind of bring this topic up with a little bit of, I don't know, awareness of the fact that we're both middle-aged white guys talking to each other about diversity and inclusion, but yeah. you have thought a lot about it. So I'd love to hear yeah. um, what you think can be done, should be done, is being done.
0: Yeah, no, I'd like to share, a, first of all, I'd like to share a story. And I, I don't know if I'm repeating myself, if we talked about that last time, but um, when, uh, when Yo-Yo Ma came to New Rips in 2018 and uh, he, he came to a, to a workshop where, you know, the, the theme of the workshop was AI for social good. And, and one of the questions, you know, that, that, that was asked to Yo-Yo Ma was, uh, you know, how, how do you build trustworthy AI, right? And it's interesting. Um, he said the most important thing for him was to understand who was behind the AI, who are the humans behind the AI? What are their intentions? What are their fears? What, what is their background? Right? What, what mm-hmm. perspective do they bring to the table? Right? What are their values Right? at the end of the day? What's the values of the human building the AI? And this actually echoes um, a theme that's very common um, when talking about building AI responsibly. One of the, one of the main questions we, we tend to get is, well, how diverse and how inclusive is the team behind the AI? diversity is a is a tricky it's a tricky concept right like diversity really means heterogeneity right it means having a team that has um people from different uh you know both innate but also chosen uh characteristics right obviously i was born in spain i'm a a white dude uh you know that that means certain things um but then you know i have my you know, political, religious, and, you know, maybe sexual and other, you know, choices that I made myself, right? And that that sort of defines, you know, who I am and, and, and kind of reflects what my both like values and circumstances are, right? So, so bringing that sort of diversity into, into teams is very important because teams that have that sort of diversity tend to make better decisions, because they tend to look at the problem from multiple angles. And, they tend to, you know, ask more and harder questions. Inclusion, inclusion means meaningful representation, right? It's like if you're at a at a cocktail party, it's one thing for everybody to get a cocktail, right? So there's there's inclusion. We're giving cocktails to everybody. It's a different thing to really sit down and 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 understand what what are your what do you like drinking, you know? Like, what, and so so making sure that that your voice is heard and that your experience actually, you know, you're not just like a, like a token, you know, person sort of ticking a box, you know, in the, in the, in sort of like the diversity list, but really like that, that you be included. Right. And that means creating a space where everyone's voice, uh, is heard where, where people, you know, uh, feel like they can bring their authentic self to work. Right. And, and sort of really like express themselves and not be, not be shut down. Right. So a couple of questions. Question number one is well, how do you do that? Like, how, how do you build a team like that? And question number two, why do you do it? Do you build a team like that, you know, because it's a necessary condition in order to build responsible AI? So I'm gonna start with the second question because it's tricky. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is something that we've debated a lot. So one danger, one risk in coupling together, you know, the goal of responsible AI and the goal of diversity and inclusion is that the burden of building responsible AI can inadvertently fall more heavily on the shoulders of underrepresented people, and this is something that we've seen you know uh, in many forums not just at facebook right whenever i'm in a in, in a forum that's trying to tackle you know issues of responsible ai disproportionately i find myself in the company of uh, of women or uh, or, or uh, underrepresented minorities right and it's interesting because because i guess like um, there's this is this kind of like a sense of duty, right, in, in, in making sure that the AI is built responsibly. If you are, you know, a member of an underrepresented group, so the, so the danger, a little bit, with um, ascribing, you know, the, the goal of diversity and inclusion, you know, as like a means to achieving responsible AI, is that you might inadvertently put that burden on, on only on a subgroup. So it's very very important to actually keep these two goals separate, and to sort of say like, no, building responsible AI is a duty of everybody, period. Now, let's turn our attention to building diverse uh, and inclusive teams, which will help, right, with responsible AI goals, right? But um, it, it also will just create teams that make better decisions overall. So let's just fo- focus
1: on that part. So how do you do this? Um, All right, I have one more question on, on yeah. that first point. So, you know, I, I feel like few people would argue that diversity and inclusion is bad, but it does seem like it comes up particularly frequently in um, AI, even like within, you know, CS practices, right? Like I, I feel like you don't hear a lot about diversity and inclusion in say like databases, but yet we touch databases probably maybe more than we touch um, AI systems. Like why do you think that it's such a important topic for AI in particular?
0: Yeah, no, thank you. Very, very good point. Yeah. I mean, I guess because AI is increasingly replacing humans in making consequential decisions, right? Algorithms are used in criminal justice to assist judges with uh, assessing risk and deciding whether someone can go out on, you know, on, on bail or whether they have to wait, you know, for trial in in jail, right? Um, in the education system or in employment, right? To to automate like pre-select resumes and and things like that. We we with with huge promise, right? Because humans are very biased actually at, at selecting resumes, right? Um, you know, in in medicine, right? For automatic diagnosis, etc. etc. And so the the opportunity uh, to reflect and amplify biases that exist in society, you know, in these automated decisions is is real and is very high, right? And so the stakes are very high. They're, they're higher, you know, a, a database is not gonna make an automatic decision. It's, it's, gonna, it's gonna give you some data. Um, you know, an AI is actually gonna make a prediction or is gonna make a
1: decision. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Okay, so how, how do you do it?
0: So, so, so typically, you know, a, a, any any diversity and inclusion strategy tends to include um, uh, two, two big buckets, right? Like one is one is hiring, right? Like how do I hire uh, more diverse people, and, and the other one is retention and and growth, right? Like if I if I have an employee base that exists already, how do I make sure that not only that I don't lose, you know, the underrepresented people, but let's just make sure that that everyone has. The same opportunities to grow and and develop in the, in the in their career, right? So that's the first thing is you got to have a strategy, you know, that that focuses on on you know finding people, you know, growing people, keeping people. Um, but then, then how do you do this, right? Like you, you could be tempted, you know, we're all engineers and we love numbers and metrics, right? And I could say, well, this is easy, you know, let's just figure out, let's just map every individual, you know to some demographics, let's just, you know, figure out whether they're underrepresented, you know, people or not, maybe we treat gender, you know, and uh, and other dimensions, you know, separately, um, so that we don't, you know, address, cause it's intersectionality issues and other and things like that. So you want to make sure that, just assume that you have like the right metrics, right? And then you could say, okay, so for every team, I have a target number, you know, that I want to hit and so on. That's very tempting. Um, But it's also fraught with uh, tons and tons of unintended consequences, right, because what might happen is that people, you know, people managers might end up making decisions that are, that actually, that take into consideration, you know, someone's uh, group membership. And and, and that could be, that could be problematic, right, for a number of reasons. Reason number one, uh, you, you never want anybody to be in a position where they feel like if they got promoted, they got promoted because they were black or because they were a female. Right. And you don't want others on the team to point fingers at them and say, Oh yeah, sure. You got promoted for that reason. Right. Or you got hired for that reason. Right. It's extremely important that, that, um, you know, either whether someone is hired or not, or or whether they get promoted is, is purely based on, on merit. Right. Um, so, so then what do you do? Well, what you do is that you you ensure that everyone has uh you know consistent uh equal opportunities and and the right amount of support right to to succeed right uh, you, you make sure that no one is left behind when, when it comes to hiring to be very specific right um, what you can do in hiring is you can use the the so-called Rooney rule i don't know if you've heard of that that rule it comes from the NFL so it, it, it was a, the, the goal of that rule was to increase the racial diversity of football coaches in the in the US, and uh, there, there was a coach called uh, uh, I, I can't remember right now if it was a coach or a team owner. Anyway, some, someone in a position of power called uh, Rooney, who who basically came up with this idea, which was like to say, "Hey, what we're going to do is we're going to make sure that we have like a, uh, a diverse slate of people that we consider whenever there's a job opening." Right. Mm-hmm. So because one of the dangers, actually, one of the biggest risks to diversity at the hiring uh, side is that people tend to hire their friends. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and obviously your friends tend to be like you. And so, um, you know, what, what the diverse slate approach or, or DSA you know, aims to do is to say, look, uh, if you have a position open. You can't just go and do like an opportunistic hiring where you just go and like grab your friend or your pal that you went to college with or whatever. You actually have to write you know, uh, an inclusive uh, job description, which means that you really focus on the things that are really relevant to the job, right? Uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and nothing else. And then second, you just go out and you, you, you make sure that you have a slate of, of candidates that you consider that is diverse. Now, once you have that slate, you have a, 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 the bar is the same for everybody right and so and that worked like in the in the in the nfl i mean there's a bunch of papers written about this um but don't write you know it it, it helps mm-hmm. so that's one thing you can do right um other things that you can do is um make sure that you have outreach programs you know to to create like awareness about the, the types of fortunes that exist because because again right like people tend to reach out or source you know from from sort of familiar circles you gotta mm-hmm. you gotta break that that barrier and then inside the organization, on, on like growing and keeping people, you know, this starts with very simple things. You know, like, um, do you have any kind of training? You know, in inside the company. Uh, and, and again, like if you're a small, a small, a small, you know, startup, uh, there's a there's a lot of resources. If you you know, if you Google, you know, uh, diversity and inclusion resources, there's a lot of like awesome, you know, talks and um, and um, and resources out there to just to just raise awareness. There's this this is small things, you know, there's this training that we have at Facebook called Be the Ally. And Be the Ally really is about just keeping an eye out for people who maybe in a meeting or at work tend to be like more silent or, or like aren't noticed, you know, and like maybe you know their voice isn't heard, right? Uh, or or even maybe maybe you sort of like witness you know, like a microaggression or, or a macroaggression. I mean, if it's a macroaggression, then everybody notices it, 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 in theory, right? But, but like keeping an eye for these things and then checking in with, with, with people, right? Like taking it on yourself to sort of go and like say, hey, I noticed this thing. It didn't feel like it was okay to me. How did you feel? And, and these small things, they make, a, they make a huge difference in creating uh, you know, an inclusive culture. On career growth, right? Like every manager should have a personalized career growth plan for everyone on their team. And you know, everyone is different, right? Has different interests, has different strengths, has different areas that they want to develop. Making sure that you consistently, you know, personalize your career growth plan for each of your employees actually makes a very big difference as well. Because sometimes if you templatize it, you know, and your requirements are like, you know, uh, the, the same, they might not be, you know, uh, adequate for, for for certain people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Th- that and a lot more, but that kind of like gives you a couple of a couple of, uh, couple of ideas.
1: I'm curious if you have any suggestions for this. Um, so these these recordings that we do, we know um, we can look at the um, we can look at the gender distribution of the people watching, and it actually skews over ninety percent um, male. Right. And it's funny because our user base is actually um, not that lopsided. So um, it feels like maybe there's something we're doing that's not um, connecting, at least with with um, women that might be watching it. I the, the guess t- how would you approach that?
0: <laughs> well, um, my my initial reaction was p- please ask the women who are not watching. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but <laughs> um, a, a couple of thoughts that come to mind. I mean, that one actually is extremely important, right? Like doing some user research and understanding, like like what, why is this not resonating? Why is this not useful to you? Uh, a couple of other thoughts. Obviously, you know. Um, One of them is like on the on the topics that are that are covered, right? Which is actually tied to what what I just said, right? To sort of understand whether those are not useful. And then the the other one, which I I don't know if you already do, is is to make sure to have at least as many female speakers as you have um, male speakers. And again, that's an interesting thing, right? Because you might say, well, you know, maybe the potential audience is actually a a majority male and, and and a minority female. But that is an interesting point of intervention, right? Where you could sort of say, well, that's fine, but we're still gonna aim for 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 fifty fifty. Um, mm-hmm.
1: makes sense. you know we always end with two questions, and I'd love to do that with you too and and kind of get your thoughts. These are a little bit open ended um, and I haven't prepped you for them, but I'm curious what you say so um, so one question we always end with is, um, you know what's an underrated aspect of machine learning that you think people should pay more attention to? and maybe for you, I'd tailor it to sort of like in ethics and responsible AI um what's something that you feel like maybe doesn't get the attention deserves it might be the the whole topic doesn't but like within that is there something you'd especially like to call out
0: yeah just be aware of averages you know i hate averages and aggregated metrics it's as simple as that right like if you if you want to develop ai more responsibility more responsibly sorry try to desegregate your metrics you just talked about gender right if you have access to gender or if you have ways in which you can you know have like the right set of up explicit informed consent for your users, you know, to give their gender and be transparent about what you're going to use it for. If you have location, you know, cause obviously, y- even if you only take the U S right, like the, the, South is very different from the coast, very different from the center and so on. Right. Like desegregate your metrics and the test that I like to give is this, right. It's like, presumably if you're launching a new refresh of your AI, whatever it might be, or a new model or whatever presumably you have a launch criteria, right? Like you have criteria to launch or not launch. And, and, and most of the time, what I observe is that it's just an all-out metric that aggregates overall users, right? Uh, well, don't do that. In, instead, you know, kind of disaggregate and, and look you know, across maybe gender, age, and location, just simple things. And then ask yourself, you know, if, if you find a bucket that is significant, you know, uh, where your AI performs the worst, would you still launch? and 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 you know like show care right that would be a that would be like a very sort of practical you know uh thing to do
1: I would say it's my reaction is that's a great suggestion for just competently launching AI also so <laughs> <laughs> there's no trade-off here I think definitely um, looking at distributions of things versus averages is a really good idea um, Some I feel like you get less um less sort of like gaussian distributions in in AI than you do outside of it so um, yeah, I'm just yeah. Be <laughs> Yet
0: people, I mean, I still see like a lot of averages everywhere I look, you know, so I feel like uh, we, we don't have like a, like a discipline of doing it.
1: Um, okay. Now last question. Um, I mean, maybe this actually goes back to like all the work that you've done in, in your career. Um, but when you look at the, the kind of productization of machine learning, like taking an ML model from sort of conception to like actually in, in, in production doing something useful, where do you see the biggest bottlenecks or where do you see the unexpected problems that someone outside the space might not realize comes up in that, in that process?
0: Yeah. Um, the, 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 a lot of things come to mind, but I think the biggest one that comes to mind is that... Uh, is that your your training data is almost never representative of of, of your of your live data, right? Yeah, right. And that's and that's just life, you know. And therefore, you know, you know. I mean, obviously, people working on self driving cars know this very well. Um, uh, you know that that you might sort of train all of your you know perception, you know behavior plan, behavior prediction and planning and whatever you know like some data, and then yes, you're gonna have a situation on the road that you had never anticipated so that so there's that and, and that's like the uh this would be like sort of like the problem of like the the black swans or like the sort of unlikely events and so on but even outside of that you know like um uh you know uh again right then you have like the very gross you know mistakes that are sort of super easy to to fix like you know again like if you if your application of ai is, is human-centric did you really have in your training data, you know, people of all ages, genders, and skin tones or not, right? And, and in a surprising amount of cases, you know, you didn't. And then you deploy your thing and now, you know, <laughs> there comes an elderly black lady and the thing is just not working for her, right? Or in ASR, right, like, like, you know, there's many different accents of English, you know, did you have like proper representation in your data or not? And mo- most of the time, you didn't.
1: Hard to do, yeah. It yeah. is hard to do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's really great to, to talk. And thanks for taking an extra time to do, to do two parter here. Really no, cool. my,
0: my, 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 pleasure. And I, uh, I, I can't wait to, uh, you know, to, to, uh, feel embarrassed by watching the, the
1: recording. <laughs> awesome. When we first started making these videos, we didn't know if anyone would be interested or, or want to see them, but we made them for fun. And we started off by making videos that would teach people. And now we get these great interviews with real industry practitioners and I love making this available to the whole world so everyone can watch these things for free. The more feedback you give us, the better stuff we can produce. So please subscribe, leave a comment, engage with us. We really appreciate it.